And I want to say thank you to Shane and Cody for filling in for me the last uh, two Sundays. Uh, it's been good for me to sit and listen to a sermon. Uh, good to learn from them. I don't know if I learned anything from Shane or not, but um, see, I have the mic now, and he doesn't, so this is how this works. Uh, but I, I appreciate it. It's good for us as a church to hear from other uh, people, not just myself. Good to hear uh, and learn from others as well. So uh, today we're going to be in Luke 9, starting in verse 28. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the story of the Transfiguration, uh, as it's called. It's a very interesting, unique story. Uh, and really the story is about three of Jesus' disciples getting a glimpse of what is to come. Getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Getting a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Getting, getting this glimpse of what uh, God is going to do and what he's going to accomplish. So I was thinking about uh, my life and just how to relate this. And about 10 years ago, I was a young, uh, younger uh, man, boy. I don't know what I was at that point in life, about 24. And I was living in Barcelona, Spain. Um, and I had um, I'd worked for Chevron right out of college and left that because I knew God was calling me to ministry. And I was spending t a year in Europe trying to figure out if I was going to be a missionary or what. And uh, I was in Barcelona on a trip uh, with one of my buddies. And uh, his name was Brandon. And we were sitting on this cliff. Uh, anybody ever been to Barcelona in here? Okay. Sitting on this cliff, uh, there's this I don't know, thousand-year-old castle behind us, and we're looking out over the ocean and the city, and it's, it's beautiful, and I'm sitting there with my poor buddy Brandon, right? Just me, these two single dudes in the most romantic place in the world, sitting on this cliff together, uh, and we're both just pondering, man, what is our life going to be? We're here together in this place with each other, and we would much rather be here with a wife and a family and a ministry and a calling and all this sorts of stuff. We just felt pretty hopeless, which is kind of sad uh, if you're in Barcelona on a beautiful spot. Uh, at that point, neither of us had any idea what was ahead. I had no concept of Maddie. I had no concept of Hudson and Addie and Ellie. I had no concept of, of standing here and preaching and pastoring this church. Ten years ago, I was clueless. And Brandon and I had a conversation that day where basically we, were, we, we talked about if we could just get a glimpse, if we could just see like, a, just give us like 30 seconds, like future, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to be? What am I going to do? And I'm here to tell you today, we didn't get that. <laughs> uh, this story is not about the glimpse I got, um, but we all feel that sometimes, whether we're going through something very difficult right now, or maybe things are really good right now, sometimes we just want this glimpse of what's ahead, what the future holds, because we need a little bit of hope, because we need a little bit of encouragement to keep moving. We need a little bit of oomph in our step, right? And that's what the story is about today. These disciples get a glimpse of what is to come and what God is going to accomplish. So let's look at it together. We're going to start in verse 27 because Shane did not talk about this verse last week. Verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let me pray. God, I thank you for uh, Peter and James and John. And I thank you that you gave them this glimpse of your glory. God, you gave them this glimpse of your kingdom. And you gave them this glimpse of what you were about to accomplish in your departure. God, I thank you for... Uh, these faithful men who recorded that and gave it to us, God. And I pray that we too would today would get a glimpse of your glory and your kingdom, God, and, and what you accomplished at your departure. And so I pray this morning that whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether hopeless or, or thinking that everything in this world is all that matters, God, I pray that we would see uh, your vision, God. We would see your kingdom and your truth, not just ours, God, not our circumstances, however good or bad they are. And so, God, help us to fix our eyes on you. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I jokingly said Shane did not cover this verse last week. He read it, uh, but he did not explain it. And I think there's a reason for that. I'm not giving him, I'm giving him a little bit of credit because it actually connects with this story. Right? So verse 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. I sat there last week and I thought, what does he mean? Like, I hadn't really read ahead yet. Like, what does he mean? Some, some of these people won't die until they see the kingdom of God. Does he, what is, like, that's a bold statement, right? We think of the kingdom of God as something, heaven or the future, right? But what, what Jesus was saying, he's saying there's some here today who will see a glimpse of the kingdom of God, some of these people that are right here, right? And so that's why Luke then goes and he says, now eight days later. He's not predicting something that's going to happen in 30 or 40 or 50 years. It's been 2,000, just FYI. Do we see the kingdom of God now? Well, in some ways, this is part of the kingdom of God, right? But in so many other ways, the kingdom of God is not here yet. And so Jesus, eight days later, he fulfills this prophecy. So he takes Peter and James and John, and they get this preview of the glory of God. And this preview, this glimpse of the purpose of God. They don't see the whole thing. They don't get all the details. They don't know all that, that we know looking back. But they get this glimpse. 
into what he's going to do to save. Now, it's interesting that he takes just three. He doesn't take all 12 up on the mountain. Uh, This was a, a prominent mountain, and I think they probably had been there many other times to pray. But Jesus takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, kind of his his closest disciples, the ones that would be primary witnesses to uh, the message after he leaves. And he takes these three, and they go up on the mountain to pray. And Jesus prays, and they sleep, right? That's pretty much standard. Anytime you hear about the Jesus and the disciples on a mountain praying, right? Jesus sets out to pray, and he's trying to bring them along, but what do they do? They fall asleep. Look at verse 29. It says, and as... Ooh, I'm sorry. I just went middle school boy there. <clears throat> 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So I think it's helpful to try to picture this, as as difficult as it may be, but to picture, okay, they're on a mountain, Jesus and these three men, and they're praying, and Jesus is praying, and, and the disciples have long ago fallen asleep. It says they're heavy with sleep, right? They have, they have, this is the youth camp strategy when you're all sleeping in one room. It's just try to pray for about 15 minutes, and everybody will fall asleep. Uh, this is what happens. These disciples are asleep. But once they wake up, they see these details, And it says that the appearance of his face, mine says, was altered. The word is metamorphosis, right? How a a butterfly changes from that to that, right? It goes through this total change of identity. His face was not Jesus' face. It was something totally Different. It was transformed from, from the human flesh that, that was Jesus into something that was brilliant and bright and glorious. He rolled back his f- human flesh in a sense and he, he, he sees he is as he always has been. We've seen this glory show up in other times. You've got to remember, right, Moses when he goes on the, uh, the mountain to get uh, the Ten Commandments, what happened when he came down? He had spent 40 days in God's presence. And what happened? His face shone, right? They, had to, they made him wear a veil because it was too bright, right? We've seen this glory. We've seen it, uh, Moses, when he uh, wants to see God, he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. And what happens? God kind of passes back behind him, and he can see this glory, this light, this This unimaginable, beautiful, terrible, frightening glory. We've seen it in other places. We've seen it when God's glory descends on the temple. We've seen it all throughout. And Peter and James and John, this day on this mountain, as Jesus is praying, they see Jesus for who he really is. Not the the human, not the flesh that he's put on, but they see his glory right? It's the same glory that one day he'll return with when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? It's the glory that he will come back with, and it's the glory he's just told them about. Look at verse 26, just from last week. 
He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes, what? In his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is going to return one day, and he's not going to look like you and I. He's going to be totally different. He's going to be glorious and bright and unimaginable. We can't even fathom what this looks like. And he is going to return, right? He says that, that those who are ashamed of me on that day, that I will be ashamed of them, right? When, when he comes, the only thing that's going to matter for you and I is not, did Jesus have long hair? <laughs> did he, was he tall? Was he short? That, that's not going to matter. It's not going to matter any of this other stuff that we care about. We won't care about the size of our bank account on that day. We won't care about the, the projects we completed and, and all the things that we build ourselves up on. On that day when the glory of God comes, it will be so bright that everything else pales in comparison. The only thing that will matter on that day is am I in Christ? Do I know Christ? And that day is coming. The glorious King Jesus will return. And he's, he's spoken of this glory, and now they're getting this glimpse of it. But let's think about his life so far. It's been very much less than glorious. Jesus is homeless. You ever seen a homeless man? Not a whole lot of glory to that, right? Jesus has no place to lay his head. Jesus has no, no family. He has no wife and kids. He has no earthly achievements. By, by all standards, his life is not glorious. He's more and more, he's hated by people just because of what he says. He's hated because of what he stands for. They don't see his glory. It's, it's veiled because of his flesh. His first coming is not that glorious. But his second will be. His second will be. Now, the only way that he's going to get to that glory, the only way we're ever going to see him come in glory is if he does what he was sent to do, if he accomplishes the purpose that he was sent to do. And he's just told them, look back at verse 22, what this purpose is. He's just told them. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. How could such a glorious, divine being come to be killed, suffer, and rejected? How? When he is so much different and better and glorious than we are. How? Why? But this is how God has sent him. And this is what God has sent him for. The only way for him to be fully glorified in our eyes is to go through the suffering. Is to go through and accomplish his purpose. And on this day on the mountain, the disciples get this glimpse. They get a small taste of the future glory of Jesus and also all that he will do. It says in that he was talking, right? Not only did his appearance change, look at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Peter and James and John wake up. And they see not only the glory of Jesus, but they see two others who are also in some sort of glory, right? 
They're some sort of glorified bodies. And it tells us that they're Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't think they recognized them from pictures. I think they had a conversation and they had a right? There, there are no pictures, right? Maybe there were. I don't know. But it was cave drawings. It's kind of hard to tell, right? Uh, sorry, that's beside the point. These two men, Moses and Elijah, why these two? Why is Jesus talking to Moses and to Elijah? I don't know if you've thought about it. I think there's a couple of good reasons, right? One is this. When, when writers use the phrase Moses and Elijah, sometimes they'll use the phrase the law and the prophets. And what does that tell us? He's talking about the whole of the Old Testament, right? And sometimes they'll use an author from the law and from the prophets to describe the whole of the Old Testament. So this is a way that authors signal this is the Old Testament. Jesus is standing there speaking with the God of the Old Testament. He's standing there speaking with the authors of the Old Testament. Now, why is that important? Why is Jesus revealing this to Peter, James, and John that day? That Jesus is speaking with and having a conversation with the whole of the Old Testament. It's because the Jesus is the continuation of this. He's not something new and different that's disconnected from the Old Testament. He, he is the continuation. He is the fulfillment of. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He's not some radical new something. No, this has been God's plan all along, right? And so this is an incredible moment because they see Moses and Elijah, who they listen to, who they read, who they view their word as God's word, and now they see Jesus talking with them, and he's glorified, and they're in some sort of glory, right? Jesus is on equal ground, his word is, but even more, right? It says that they were standing there, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, this is a new thought for these disciples. And Jesus has just told them that he's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. They've not considered this possibility that Jesus is going to last for a short time. They've not considered this. And in their mind, Jesus is the Messiah. They've just confessed that. And he's going to rule and reign. And he's going to dominate. He's going to be forever. And Jesus is saying, no, I've got a departure plan here, right? The departure word, we translated departure in English. The word in Greek is exodus, his exodus. Now, why does that matter? Why is Jesus standing there talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, right? It's not just his, his death. That's not what he means. There's a lot of loaded imagery there. What is Exodus about in the Old Testament? How God saved his people from their sin. How he brought them from slavery to freedom. How he rescued them from the, the grips of, of a tyrant and set them free in the promised land. That's what Exodus is about. And Jesus is standing there talking with Moses about his Exodus. What he's going to do to rescue God's people from slavery and bring them to freedom. Do you see it? Right? This is a beautiful imagery in this one little word. 
Jesus is standing there speaking with Moses and Elijah about God's plan to save his people and how he's going to accomplish that, he says, very soon in Jerusalem. Now, it's also interesting these two men are the ones he's talking to, Moses and Elijah, because both Moses and Elijah had unique departures, unique exoduses from this earth. Moses, anybody remember? This is worth 12 bonus points. Just kidding. Moses does not enter the promised land. Where does he go? Up on some mountain, and he dies. And God buries him is what it tells us, right? This is a unique departure. No one was there. He didn't enter the promised land. He has a unique ending to his life. What about Elijah? This is also worth 12 bonus points. He's taken up in glory on a chariot of fire. His life does not end normally like the rest of us, right? His, his departure, his exodus was unique. And I think Jesus is standing there that day speaking about his unique departure. His exodus from this earth is unlike any other that has ever happened or ever will, right? Because he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and then he is going to rise again. He's already told them that, and now he's telling it again in a different way. Look at verse 32. It says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And just as they would later in the Garden of Gethsemane be asleep at one of these critical moments of Jesus' ministry, uh, Peter and James and John wake up. I, I think they're overcome with this news. I think they're, they're overwhelmed with ministry with Jesus. I think they're tired. So like we can cut them a little bit of slack this morning. But when they awoke, they were amazed at what they witnessed. And all three of them saw the same thing. Luke highlights that, three witnesses. Not one, not one person who saw this, three of them. And they listened to the conversation for a little bit. And no doubt, they probably asked questions, and they probably had other dialogue and had introductions. And we don't know how long they were up there. But at some point, it came time for Moses and Elijah to leave. And Peter, God bless him, Peter said what? Man, it's good that we are here. Just like last week, Shane pointed out how Peter does confess the truth. Jesus, you are the Christ. But what Peter means and what his knowledge is not complete, right? It's, it's incomplete. He's saying true things, but it's not quite all the way there. And right here, he says the same thing. This glory, whatever this is that you guys have, this is good, right? That's a real descriptive word by him. Good. This is good. So you ask your kids, how was school? It was good, right? Somehow Jesus' glory is also good. But he gets this glimpse of it, and he has this moment where his mouth goes before his brain, and he just starts talking. He wants to stay right here. I don't know what this is, but I want to stay right here. And so he makes a ridiculous suggestion. He's going to build three tents. 
I guess he's not staying, and I guess James and John aren't staying, but he's going to build three tents for some reason for these three. But I think there's more to it than that, more to it than just Peter being a little bit ridiculous. I think Peter, in saying, like, this is good, let's stay here, he's saying, I I don't want you to suffer and be rejected and crucified and rise again. I don't want you to have to go through the suffering to get to the glory. I don't, I don't want any of that. I, let's just stay here on this mountaintop. Let's just stay right here. We don't have to go back to the real world. We don't have to experience all the hate and the struggle and the strife and the, the difficulty. He's saying, I want to bypass that and just get the glory. Right? I don't want to go through it. But Peter doesn't understand Peter doesn't understand that Jesus didn't come to be a political, military leader. He came to be the Lamb of God God, who died on the cross for the sins of the world. And the only path to seeing His glory and His kingdom fully is what? It's through suffering. It's through death. And it's through resurrection. Look at verse 34. I hope I never experience this. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. As Peter makes this ridiculous suggestion, there's a cloud that comes over him and overshadows him, and a voice that booms unlike any voice that they've ever heard before, maybe except one time at his baptism. And this voice shows up and surrounds them. It's God the Father in his his glory. And he surrounds them. And they are deathly afraid. They are wondering what what is about to happen to us. Peter, James and John are just mad at Peter at this point, right? Why did you say that? And a voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is real similar to what God the Father, the voice, said at Jesus' baptism. What did he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, right? This is the second time a voice from heaven has come and confirmed. No, Jesus who you call the Messiah, who you've seen do these miracles and over and over, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And Peter realizes, I should have shut my mouth. I'm not the one that should be speaking. He is It's also an incredibly huge statement because they're standing there with Moses and Elijah the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, their scriptures, their knowledge of God. And they listen to Moses and they listen to Elijah. They listen to the law, they listen to the prophets. And now a voice comes and says, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. It's a statement that Jesus is the fulfillment and the continuation and the Messiah of the Old Testament. And Peter realizes, I need to be quiet. Verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything 
of what they had seen. And just as had happened before in certain instances, Jesus tells them, hey, don't tell anybody this. This time they didn't have to because they had been told by God the Father, listen to him, shut your mouth, right? And it seems as though they didn't even tell the other disciples. They go back to the other nine and I don't know if their face is glowing. I don't know if they, they had some sort of tell that gave it off. And I'm sure they knew something had happened. But they didn't even tell them until later. Probably until after Jesus rose again. And they said, you know what? On that mountain, we saw his glory. We saw the kingdom. We know where this is headed. And I think these three listened more intently. Most likely, this is two and a half years into Jesus' ministry. That means the rest of the book of Luke, all the way to chapter 24, is about six months. We're going to spend the next six months thinking about Jesus' departure, how he left this earth, his exodus, how he saved us, how he went to the cross, how he accomplished glory through suffering. Now, I think for us, as we close, there's a few ways that I think this applies to our lives today. So many times we want glory without the suffering, without the trial, without the difficulty. But that is not God's way. God's way is that glory comes through suffering. God has a plan, and he has ordered his plan, and we can't short-circuit that. So many times we want to we bypass the difficulty. We want to go around and go straight to the good part, right? I want to skip ahead from, from Barcelona Mountain, or whatever it was called, to now. That's what I want to do in my flesh. But God needed to take me through 10, 11 years to bring me to this point, right? And that's true for so many of us. If you're in the midst of a trial today, that's hard to hear. Because you want to skip this part and get to the part where you go, hey, God was faithful. The only way you're going to get there and look back and say God was faithful is if you trust him through it. If you lean into him through it all, no matter what it is. I think it's also important for us today from this that we remember Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again. He will and he's coming in glory this next time. He's not coming as a homeless man with some radical teachings, doing some cool tricks. That's not what he's coming at. He's coming as a king riding on a horse with a sword by his side. And he's coming to get vengeance for the sin that you and I have committed. And the only way we can avoid that is if we have been forgiven. Is if we are in Christ and we have forgiveness and mercy. Jesus will come again. And one day it's important for us to remember that we too will be transformed. I don't know that we're going to look like Moses and Elijah did on that mountain. But the truth of scripture is, is that this, our body, our earthly experience that we feel now is not the ultimate. There's something so much better and grander that is ahead of us. And I think that speaks to us in two ways. One, if you're struggling. If you've dealt with sickness and disease and death and brokenness and rejection, there's hope because there's something better that awaits you. Right? That's the point of us getting a glimpse of glory is to encourage us and to, to press us on. But it also speaks to us that things have gone well in our life. 
if things have just fallen into place and you're healthy and, and, and life's kind of as you want it to be, don't be lulled to sleep by that. There's something so much better than living for this life. And I think that's the reason Jesus gives us a glimpse of glory. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning um, that no matter where we're at, God, that we would, you would give us a glimpse of your son. And pray that you would help us to see who he is and what he came to do, what he came to accomplish in Jerusalem and all that would happen because of his departure. God, I pray that that if there's someone in here today who does not have a relationship with you, maybe they know all the facts like Zach, maybe they, they've been in church their whole life, God, but they know in their heart of hearts that they are not saved, that if the Son of Glory were to appear today, that they would cower in fear, not rejoice in hope. God, I pray that if there's someone like that today, God, that they would put their faith in you. They would seek forgiveness in the sacrifice that Jesus shed for us, God. God, I pray that our hope would not be in this earth. It would not be in the stuff and the things of this earth, God, but that our hope would be in you. God, fix our eyes on you. Help us to look to you in all things. God, we love you and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.